It's a joy for me to be uh, standing here and sharing this time with you. I've been coming to FWS conferences longer than probably most of you, except Jim on the back row. Uh, I've been coming since the very late 80s, which is probably before some of you were born, maybe even. I don't know. Um, uh, when I, just before I was ordained, before I went to theological college, uh, a guy called Mark Burkhill, who many of you will know, brought me along on my first FWS conference, and I enjoyed it so much that um, I've been to a good many since. I haven't been to every one. Um, I should have been, but I haven't. Uh, but they are, they, I, there is nowhere like an FWS conference to be able to float ideas, to be open and honest with one another, and, um, and just to, to share the deep joys and the heartaches of ministry. So I would encourage you to do that. If you're new to this conference, make, make the most of it. Because there is no other conference like it. There's no judgment goes on at this conference at all. Second thing I want to say is I want to recommend another book. It's not on the bookstore. It's only been out a week. Uh, Lee's looking worried. And um, it's by uh, my uh, training incumbent and now member of my congregation, Wallace Ben. Commentary on Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther. It's hot off the press. It is just published last week. Uh, it's in the Preach the Word series, uh, which is a fantastic series in itself, actually. Uh, and it's great. I can't tell you where to get it cheap. Ten of those, it's about just under 20 quid, I think, on ten of those. Uh, but it's worth it. It really is. Well worth getting hold of that. Should we pray? God, our Father, thank you for the truth and power of your word. Please encourage us and thrill us now, we pray. In your name. Amen. It's difficult to know what you can say about Ephesians. All you need to do, I think, is stand up here and read it because it is the most joyful, encouraging book in the whole of the Bible. Um, it is considered by F.F. F. Bruce to be the most developed statement of Paul's theology, whether you believe it's by Paul or not. Uh, I do believe it's by Paul. But it's considered to be the capstone, says F.F. Bruce, capstone of Paul's theology. It sets God's plans and God's actions in a cosmic scale like no other book in the Bible. With a possible exception of the book of Revelation, we get a cosmic plan of what God is doing. Uh, O'Brien says this, uh, cosmic reconciliation and unity in Christ are the central message of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Of course, it does have issues. I'll just mention them, but you can read the commentaries as well as I can. Who's it by? Well, it's by Paul. Uh, Not everybody believes that, but you can check what the commentaries say. Who is it to? Well, Ephesus, maybe some other churches as well, but you can check the commentaries on that one too. That's a bit controversial. Um, And you can read those things for yourself. Again, F.F. Bruce said, if the epistle to the Ephesians was not written directly by Paul, but by one of his disciples in the apostle's name, then its author was the greatest Paulinist of all time. So uh, there we go. Now, I could have spent ages doing close exegesis of the book of Ephesians, and indeed, I started by, uh, you know, as, as you do, as you learn at Theological College, getting the Greek text and trying to make my own translation and trying to work it all out. And I thought to myself, I haven't got time to do all this. And apart from that, 
you can all read, and many of you are far more intelligent than me. You can read all the commentaries I've got and more. So there's little point in me doing that. What I want to do is to take a kind of overview of Ephesians, take some of the themes and try and encourage us with them. So let's think about the background to Ephesus for a little bit. Paul spent longer in Ephesus than anywhere else. He loved this church. He loved these people. Initially, it was a very successful mission when Paul went to Ephesus. But it didn't remain that way. If you read Acts chapter 19, you'll uh, find out that it was not plain sailing. There were spiritual battles with the sons of Sceva. Uh, There was a riot. And uh, very interestingly, there was what some commentators call a Gentile Pentecost right at the very beginning of, uh, uh, of Paul's time in Ephesus. So it was a mixed time. But we do know that Paul loved these people deeply. You know, one of the most moving passages, I think, in the whole of the New Testament is Paul's address to the Ephesian elders in the end of Acts chapter 20. If you don't know that passage, write the reference down and look it up and read it, Acts 20, 17 to 38. There is, it's a deeply moving and loving exchange uh, between Paul and the elders in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was known for all kinds of things, but particularly it was known for sorcery, necromancy, exorcism, and all kinds of magic arts. A bit like Brighton, really, if, uh, if you know Sussex. Uh, it was, you know, very modern, very kind of new agey. Just because you know, new age is not new at all, it's old age, really. But in the middle of all these kind of magic arts, there was this huge temple of Diana. You couldn't go to Ephesus without being confronted with the temple of Diana. It was a very spiritual place, in inverted commas, for good or for ill. So when Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus and maybe a few other churches around, what does he write about? Let me give you a quick whistle-stop tour of some of the um, themes in this book. Well, there is a theological theme, theology. God is sovereign over everything. To put it in our language today, we might say, God runs the show. There's nobody else, no other contenders. God is sovereign over everything. There's strong Christology. Christ's death defeated rebellion against God, crushed all those who rebelled against him in the heavenly places and on earth. It's got strong pneumatology. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our belonging. We uh, we read that, chapter 1, verse 14. He's the bringer of revelation and understanding to God's people. Chapter 1, verse 17. And the Holy Spirit is the builder of the church. Chapter 2, verse 22. It has a strong soteriology. Uh, which is uh, subtly, subtly advanced on that of the book of Romans. Because the soteriology in Ephesians takes in Christ's death, resurrection and heavenly session all together, buying our salvation. It has a strong ecclesiology. 
The church is the demonstration of the now revealed mystery. We'll think about that later. And the church is anchored in the eternal purposes of God. It's not something that God kind of cooked up when things started to go a bit wrong. Right from before the foundation of the world, God had all of this in mind. It has um, a teleology, that is a purpose, um, that God should be glorified. That is the um, teleology of God's creation, that he should be glorified in his sovereignty. That's what it's all about. By bringing unity to the irreconcilable, so that looking on, it's breathtaking what God can do. And it's the whole of the Trinity working together to bring about God's purposes. Just let me uh, read to you a couple of verses on this one because these are very interesting. Uh, chapter 1, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that, God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. You're all the Trinity in pretty much one verse there. And there's a similar kind of statement in chapter 3 and verse uh, 10. We read this, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purposes that he realised in Christ Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through the Father to him. The Trinity working together. Ephesians has a, a, a particular cosmology as well. The earth and the heavenly places. Well, we picked that up again in the book of Revelation, but it's not so strong elsewhere in the New Testament, possibly with the exception of the book of Colossians, which is very closely related to Ephesians. The earth and the heavenly places. F.F. F. Bruce again says, Christ is portrayed as the one through whom all the powers in the universe were created and the one who by his triumphant death has brought them all into captivity to himself. All in all. There is a polemology. I had to look that word up. It's uh, war, war studies, in case you don't know. Polemology. There's a battle raging in the heavenly places, says Paul. There's eschatology. The victory is secured. It is assured. Whatever it may look like now, the victory has been won by the death and resurrection and ascension and heavenly session of the Lord Jesus Christ. The victory over the heavenly beings in rebellion against God. The victory against sin and the devil and the principalities and powers of the air. The victory has been won. It's in uh, the past tense. It's actually an aorist tense in Greek. Now, I know that Greek studies move on quite a lot, and it's a long time since I was at theological college. But um, I learned when I was at theological college that the aorist tense has a perfective or a stative aspect. Now, if you don't know what that means, don't worry about that. I had head shaking back there. Perfective or stative aspect. That means... The aorist tense talks about something that is now. It is now. And that's how Paul writes. The victory is assured. And uh, it has a distinct anthropology. Um, again, F.F. F. Bruce writes this. 
lost it. There it is. F.F. Bruce writes this. Christ's people are so vitally united to him, being members of the body of which he is the head, that they share in his triumph and have no need to pay homage to those elemental forces which formerly held them in bondage. Isn't that incredible? That Christ's victory is our victory because we are united with him. That's a brief whistle-stop tour of some of the themes. Now, uh, let's think a little bit more about God's sovereignty. And the first thing to think about is this. Our perseverance is rooted in God's sovereignty. Our perseverance is rooted in God's sovereignty. Right, I want you to imagine the following scenario. Some of you may have experienced something like this, though I doubt it. Uh, you, as a, an incumbent, have um, just been told that your church warden has been having an illicit affair with somebody else in the congregation. And as you're wondering how on earth you're going to handle that, uh, your other warden phones up and says he's going to resign as warden uh, because you haven't dealt with the other warden and the problems that he's in. Slap. You've got no church wardens and one with a big problem. Your PCC secretary has just died of um, cancer, pancreatic cancer, which is very quick. He'd had a couple of weeks notice and he'd gone, leaving a, a, a shell-shocked and grieving family with young children. Your treasurer has just confided to you that he was born a girl. <coughs> and uh, the lead has just been stolen from your church roof. Your last sermon series on godly living has caused uproar. Uh, there's been a string of angry emails and unfriendly posts on Facebook. Don't go near this man's church. He'll tell you how you should be living. And who is he to tell me how to live? And to top it all, you turned your computer on this morning and your hard disk died and you didn't have a backup and it had a lifetime of work on it. You knew you should have backed it up. Some of us have been there, haven't we? Now, yes, of course, I don't think any of us face anything quite like that, but many of us will face some of those things. How do you keep going when you face a situation like that? Even a situation like that, in part. How do you keep going? Well, let's think about the Apostle Paul. I said before he'd spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else. It hadn't been an easy time because of conflict with the, uh, the temple of Diana and all the other things I talked about earlier on. Over his ministry, Paul had already had his life threatened. He'd been beaten, he'd been imprisoned. He'd seen friends martyred and he'd been warned not to preach. Indeed, he was in prison when he was writing this letter. Still to come in his life, he was to be arrested and tried, shipwrecked and held in house arrest until his death. It seemed like everything was against him. He could so easily have given up, couldn't he? How many of us, if we'd been Paul, might have said something like, well, clearly God isn't in this. I'm going the wrong way. God's trying to tell me I shouldn't be going in this direction. One commentator, Brian Chappell, says this. We would understand if Paul simply said, I give up, Lord. 
The obstacles are greater than I. You'll just have to find someone else. Yet Paul refuses to quit because he recognises that his strength to face the obstacles lies in provisions beyond him. God's word and God's will. How did Paul keep going against those odds? Well, the answer is right in the very first verse of this letter. First verses that we often kind of skip over as just an introduction, but look at where Paul starts. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. By the will of God. It's that that keeps Paul going. Because he knows he is in God's will. Whatever is thrown at him, he knows he is in God's will. Now how about you in your ministry? Think back to the fictitious scenario. Many of us are knocked sideways by even just one of those problems and difficulties in ministry. Because too often we act like everything depends on us, don't we? Everything depends on my wisdom. I've got to be there to make those decisions because other people won't make them like I will. Everything depends on my strength. I've got to to be at every meeting. I've got to be doing things. I've got to be strong for people. Everything depends on my presence. If I'm not around, things just fall apart. I'm sure many of you can relate to that. Everything depends on my gifts, the gifts God has given to me for his church. Everything depends on my effort. Well, let me tell you, it doesn't. It just doesn't. And, you know, I've been in ministry for about 25 years, something like that. And I still haven't learned this. I need to be reminded of this again and again and again, every day probably. It does not depend on me. And if we don't learn that, ministry can be and will be a discouraging place for you. If you're new in ministry, learn that lesson. It doesn't depend on you, because if you don't, you'll be discouraged and you may not make it. A wise missionary prayer letter once said this, Pray for my habitual tendency to be activity-focused, acting as though my self-worth and God's work depended on my ability to accomplish tasks. Oh, how we need to pray for one another that we get over that one. When I uh, was thinking about ordination as a teenager back in the dark ages, I uh, was talking to my uh, minister who's now in glory with the Lord. He was a great and godly man. Uh, And uh, I talked to him about ministry and, and he said, Don't get ordained until you're certain that God has called you. Don't get ordained just because you think you've got the right gifts or because you think you can do it or because you think it's a nice place to be. Don't get ordained until you are certain that God has called you. Because, he said rightly, when the going gets tough, you know you are where God wants you to be. 
Because if you don't have that, you look back and you'll think, well, maybe I was mistaken. You know, too often I've heard the call to ministry kind of disparaged among conservative evangelicals. Oh, there's no such thing as a call. That's all airy-fairy. We just, we need to be more factual than that. It's not about a call. Take no notice of that. I want to plead with us to say that the call is important. Call to ministry. And when people in your congregation are thinking about going into full-time ministry, talk to them about being called to it. Not just being gifted for it, but being called to it. So that when the going gets tough for them, they'll be able to stand firm, as the Apostle Paul did. So our perseverance is rooted in God's sovereignty. Sorry, I've lost my place here. Computers are wonderful things, aren't they? Our perseverance is rooted in God's uh, sovereignty. Next, our calling is also rooted in God's sovereignty. Our perseverance and our calling. It's rooted in his sovereignty because it is actually nothing to do with me. God doesn't call you because of your intrinsic value or because he thinks you'll be a good addition to the team. He doesn't call you because you're worthy. You know, over, over my ministry, some of, the most, some of the most blessed leaders I've seen are the most unlikely people who seem to be all over the place with, you know, don't even have any of the skills for ministry. But God blesses them because God has called them. God hasn't called you because you're intelligent. Or because you're friendly. God has called you by his sovereign grace. In his sovereign grace, he chose you. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So our calling is rooted in his sovereignty. Our calling is also the greatest blessing. And I'm not just talking about calling to ministry here. I'm talking about our calling to salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at some of the words that Paul uses when he talks about God's uh, effectual call. Chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The extent of that blessing, every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing, and the certainty of it, God has done it. He has blessed us. Not will, if we're good, or if we choose to go the right way. He has blessed us. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Just let that sink in for a moment. He called us 
for adoption, to be his. Brothers and sisters, because we share the same heavenly father. Brothers and sisters with Christ, says Paul. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I love that idea of God lavishing his grace upon us. It's grace upon grace upon grace, more, more than we need. He lavishes it upon us. He's brought us redemption, made us right with him. Something we could never, ever do. God has done it. Chapter 1 and verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. He has uh, given us revelation. That, that's quite something, isn't it? That God uh, chose us, adopted us, blessed us, and then helped us to understand the mystery. Now, I'll be thinking about the mystery, probably next time or time after that, just what that's about. But we have an understanding of something that has been a mystery until Christ came. God has given us that revelation. How many times have you heard uh, new Christians, when they start reading the Bible, say, well, why did I not understand this before? It's so simple. And yet you read the Bible with those who are not believers, and they struggle. They don't understand it. It's because God works in revelation. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. An inheritance, wow, and what an inheritance it is too. And then verse uh, 13, in him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. He's given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of what is yet to come. Isn't that just fantastic? The greatest blessing. The sovereignty of God is the greatest blessing. His sovereignty also brings a role for us. He gives us a ministry. He doesn't doesn't just choose us and bless us and give us the Holy Spirit and revelation and all this wonderful stuff and then say, there you are, just uh, get on with it. He gives us a role. And that is, first, the subject of this conference, godliness. That we should be godly. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I think that is one of the most difficult verses in the whole of the New Testament. We've just looked at this calling which is so incredible with all this grace and blessing and redemption. And now Paul says we've got to walk, live in a manner that's worthy of that. I don't think I can get there. But surely we can try. Chapter 4 and verse 20, we read this. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the uh, truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, 
and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's a favourite text of preachers because it lends itself to all kinds of illustrations, taking off and putting on. But it's about godliness, isn't it? Our role is to be godly. Second part of our role is this, to build one another up. It's not all about me as an individual. We are to build one another up. Uh, In chapter 5 and verse 17, we read this. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understanding, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. We're to build one another up, not tear one another down. And that's one of the joys of a conference like this, that we truly can build one another up. And one of the um, penalties of ministry, particularly if if you're in a, a, a ministry where you are on your own, as increasing numbers of us are, you've got no assistant ministers, no team, uh, you're on your own. You need to come to conferences like this to be built up. Because you cannot survive on your own. We're to build one another up. And third, our role is this. To model God's wisdom. Chapter 3 and verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, through which I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of God and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Model God's wisdom. Now you need to know what God's wisdom is if you're going to model it and uh, we'll find out about that in due course. Again in chapter 5 and verse 31 Paul says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Modelling God's wisdom in our relationships, in our marriages. We'll return uh, to that one uh, in the next day or so. So all this is just fantastic, isn't it? The, The sovereignty of God. If we, if we don't believe in the sovereignty of God, I don't know where we'd be. And uh, there are Christians over the centuries who have not believed in the sovereignty of God. If I didn't believe that God had me in his hand, that he chose me, called me, predestined me, gifted me, all that kind of stuff, I, I, I would be really anxious and nervous about falling away. I know that he's got me. And my actions are not to keep my salvation or to gain my salvation. They are a response to my salvation. So why should we trust God in closing? Here's a few reasons why we should trust God. Because he is not simply one among many, like pagans believe. 
one of some great pantheon of gods, all fighting for position. Our God is way above that. He is not simply the God who works for me. That's fine for you, but my ideas are different. Like our culture believes, that's not what, that's not our God. Our God is sovereign over the powers of the air. That's interesting, isn't it? Spiritual powers. He is sovereign over spiritual powers. Our God has worked in history. In fact, he made history. He created history. He continues to work in history. He is sovereign over the Lord Jesus Christ and has uh, planned what the Lord Jesus Christ should do and who he should be. And we'll read, uh, when we get a little bit further on, that God gave Christ as a gift to the church. That's interesting, isn't it? We'll think about that. He's sovereign over you, whether you know him or not. He's won the victory. There's a battle raging, but victory is certain. There's no openness of God theology in the New Testament, certainly not in Ephesians. The victory is won. And he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Sinclair Ferguson says this, and with this I conclude. We live too often below the level of our privileges. We live too often below the level of our privileges. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you so much that you are a sovereign God. Help us to understand more and more what that means for us. We thank you that you have... have lavishly blessed us and poured grace upon grace into our lives. Help us not to live below our privileges. Help us to live always to serve you and to bring glory to your name. In your name we pray. Amen.